0: All right. Well, we want to continue our study. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open the second Corinthians chapter four verse five, please? The message is entitled The Centrality of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians uh, 4, four five um speaks very clearly. Um One of the chief distinctives of Calvary Chapel is this very basic, very clear indication throughout the New Testament that Jesus is central to the gospel. He is the focus of our lives, the message, and we want nothing to distract from him. Paul the Apostle as he wrote to the Corinthians in defense of his apostleship, says the following in 2 Corinthians 4-5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. You and I are saved by grace through faith, through the name and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church, as we've seen, he is the one that is to have all the glory. And nothing should detract from him. Not people. Not the building. Nothing is to detract from him. So, we want to look at the centrality of Jesus from three perspectives. First, Jesus is the centrality of the scriptures that we'll see. Second, Jesus is the centrality of salvation. Thirdly, Jesus is the centrality of worship. Let's begin with the centrality of scripture. As you know, Jesus is the promised Messiah throughout the Old Testament, it's a red thread that runs from Genesis. All the way to the book of Revelation. Cover to cover. It begins in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. After the fall. The very first thing God did. Was not deal with Adam and Eve. He gave the promise. Of the promised Messiah. It says in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you. And the woman. Talking about the serpent. Satan used the serpent to bring the fall. In between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A woman has no seed in herself. She has the egg. It's the man that provides the seed. There you have the first prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah through a woman. The fall came through a woman. The salvation of God the Messiah would come through a woman also. Notice he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Bruising of the heel is a temporary wound at the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. He'll bruise your head, a fatal wound. Jesus destroyed Satan at the cross and the power of death. So you get the end result from the beginning. Jesus wins right from the beginning. In Galatians 4.4, Paul said, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, under the law. Right on time, through all the progressive prophecies of the Old Testament, we're going to see all the prophecies of Jesus that were over and over again. And they came and they culminated in a set time, at a set date, at the set time, when God had prepared the world That was in peace with the Roman Empire. When all the roads were able to take the gospel throughout the world. One language, Greek. When the fullness of time had come. The perfect time. God sent forth a son made of a woman under the law. God has never been tardy for anything. Right on time. Jesus was the sin offering for all of mankind. If you go through the book of Leviticus, it's a good... It's a good book to understand. It's monotonous at first, you think, but do you look into it? Every sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ. The blood that was given for an atonement upon the altar for the forgiveness of sin. It was just a covering. Leviticus 17, 11. It prefigured the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was to come. Every animal was to substitute for that sinner. So that sinner would come, take an animal tied to the pole. That sinner would lay its hands on the animal, symbolically transferring their sins to the head of this animal. It had been examined by the priest, no spot, no wrinkle. It was accepted. And then the sinner would take a knife and cut the goat or the sheep's throat. Instantly, that little animal would hit the ground. And the man would be looking down and he was to realize that should have been me. That lamb took my place as a covering until the true payment to come, Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the seed of the woman. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Many prophecies, again, when a prophecy is proclaimed, it's proclaimed to be fulfilled in the future. So you have the type and the anti-type. The anti-type is the fulfillment, okay? Okay. For this to be a true prophetic type, there must be a fulfillment. Okay? So you have the proclamation and the fulfillment of that. And certainly Jesus showed us there about that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, you remember, in the book of Numbers 21. Specifically in verse 9, as the children of Israel were, um, very caught up with their idolatry and uh, the Midianites and all that. And God sent poisonous serpents into the camp and so God told Moses to make a bronze serpent verse 9 it says so Moses made a bronze, a bronze serpent and bronze or brass either one and put it on a pole and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent he lived so Moses announced listen if you just look upon this serpent, he put on a pole, put it in the midst of camp. When you get bit, if you look upon it and you believe, then God will heal you. Now you and I reading that could have never imagined that that was prophetic of Christ, but Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus in John three fourteen through fifteen said, "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so." Must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? That was prophetic of Jesus Christ. The pole represented the cross. The serpent speaks and represents sin. Brass is always judgment. Gold is deity. Silver is redemption. Brass is judgment. You had sin being judged on the cross. If you believe upon him, prophetic of Jesus Christ, Jesus points it out completely. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 and 19 says, and I will raise up. From them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Speaking to Moses. And will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words. Which he speaks in my name. I will require it of him. There were many prophets. This is the prophet. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem. On that Easter Good Friday, he wrote in as king, priest, and prophet. Now you had kings who were kings and prophets, but no king in the Old Testament was ever king, priest, and prophet. That was reserved for Jesus Christ. And so, in John seven forty, it says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet and not only in this case but if you cross reference it in your computer you'll find many of the passages that he was the prophet remember in the on the road to Emmaus as Jesus appeared to them and they said we, we you know it's been the third day we thought he right we thought he was the prophet which one are're talking about Deuteronomy 18 Jesus was a child born and the son given, prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, To order it and establish it in judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, will perform this. A son, child born, humanity, son given, the son of God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah cried out to God in prayer, All that you would rent the heavens and come down. Jesus is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. 700 years later, as he came down and became man, Jesus was the one Isaiah saw On the throne in heaven. You remember when the king Uzziah died. Isaiah in chapter 6 verse 1 and 3 says. In the year the king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Remember the seraphim have six wings. Two they fly. Two they cover their feet. And two their face. Okay. Holy, holy, holy unto the Lord. And, and above it stood seraphims. One, um, each one had six wings. Uh, two that covered the face. Two they covered the feet. And two they flew. And one cried to another, saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts." There it is again. The captain of the armies of heaven. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah loved Uzziah. He was broken-hearted when he died. He was a good king for the most part. We come to the gospel of John in chapter 12, verse 41. And it says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, his glory talking about Jesus Christ, and spoke of him. So the passage in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, John interprets for us by the Spirit of God that what Isaiah saw, who Isaiah saw, was Jesus Christ. Wow. Jesus the Lamb of God. Led to the slaughter we are told. In Isaiah 53. 7 through 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent. And as, um, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of many people, or my people, he was stricken. He came to his own, his own received, him, not the Jew. They rejected him, but he was sent to the Jew. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus... Coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The world is all humanity, ladies and gentlemen. Do not allow any Calvinist or the neo-Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, same animal, to tell you that the world means the elect. When the world, it says the world, it's all inhabitants. God sent a son to die for the whole world, not for the chosen frozen. Okay? Do not let people misinterpret corruptly what that word world means. Very important. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. That's why judgment will fall upon people. Because God sent a son to die for all, and yet they reject the gift of God altogether. Not that God elected some to damnation. You'll never find that in scripture. It would be contrary to his nature. Of love, justice, holiness, goodness. He wouldn't do that. He couldn't do that. Now Jesus was and is God in human form then. He is called the word of God. Existing from all eternity. In Micah 5, two, He says, but you Bethlehem. Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from a old, from everlasting, literally from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, from eternity, the very place of his birth, Bethlehem. Who? The eternal one. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and God was the word from eternity. Jesus emptied himself or divested himself of his glory to die on the cross. Never his deity. In fact, he quoted Psalm 22.1 from the cross. As the wrath of the Father was poured out on Jesus, for you and for myself, as we've seen in Second Corinthians 5 21 He says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse one, when you read down to verse three, he gives you reason why the Father forsook him. He says, "But you are holy. You see, Jesus became sin for all of us, and the Father who is holy could not look upon sin with condonance. He has to judge sin. And Jesus became the substitute for every sinner in the world. And in a way that you and I cannot understand completely and will never understand it to its full end until we get there is that the Son, who was eternal, who became man, was literally separated from the Father for the first time in a way that we don't understand. And he endured the wrath of God that really I deserved and you deserved. And there was an actual payment made for sin, and that payment was accepted. And the receipt of that payment was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He defeated death. Oh, Grave, where's your sting? Where's your victory? None whatsoever. And so, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he emptied himself, Philippians 2 8 says, and became obedient. To the point of death, even the death of the cross. He emptied himself of his glory, not of his deity. He was 100% man, 100% God. And yet as man, the last Adam, he depended on the Father. And he demonstrated that in the temptation of the wilderness. So that you and I can understand that he didn't defeat Satan as God. That would be no, no challenge at all. He defeated Satan as the last Adam, just like the first Adam. To demonstrate the first Adam didn't have to fail and the last Adam would not fail. And that you and I have no excuse for just giving into sin. Hebrews says, you have not striven as of blood as of yet against sin. Wow. Jesus is the very topic of the scriptures He told the Jews in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify or speak of me. All the scriptures. Hebrews 10.7 says, Then I said, Behold, I I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The red thread from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is the full revelation of God to man. There is no other revelation needed. It is not incomplete. It is completely full and finished. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days... The age of grace spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He said on the cross, it is finished. Sitting is a position of rest. The work of redemption has been done. He's the full revelation to man. In fact, Revelation 19:10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is central to the gospel. Like everything you own, a house, a car. A retirement account. They all focus on the centrality of your name. They belong to you. So Jesus with the scriptures. Everything's all about him. There's not one book that's not about him. There's not one prophecy that's not about him. Shadows, types of things to come. Jesus declared no other person can be identified to be the Messiah outside of himself. In Matthew 24, 5, Jesus said that many would come in his name, but they would deceive many. First words out of his mouth on the Mount of Olive of Discourse, it says, Take heed that no man deceive you. Simple. That prophecy is fulfilled. He is the Messiah of God. Paul the Apostle clearly communicated the centrality of Jesus in all he planned and in the promises of God when he wrote to the Corinthians because the Corinthians were kind of like teenage, uh, spoiled teenagers. They were getting kind of cocky with Paul and getting smart mouth. And they thought Paul was kind of being fickle, changing his plans for travel. And so in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. It's all about him, no one else. Paul says that if we are going to glory in anything, we should glory in Christ and Christ alone. This is the danger of Christians getting puffed up. This is the danger of pastors believing all the press that people tell them or believing the success that God gives to them as if it comes from them. If there was ever, ever any example to all of us in Calvary Chapels, it was Pastor Chuck. He was the first and he always stated that all that God had done was simply by grace, not because of him, but in spite of him. But people really didn't believe it because they were trying to examine why is God blessing here? When they first started in the '70s, you know, everybody had shag carpet. If you remember, you had take a rake to, you know, pile it up again. You know what I mean? And that one must be the green shag carpet. It must be this that, the, You know, as a stool. He sits and he teaches from a stool or whatever. People are trying to analyze this thing. Listen. It was the glory of God moving sovereignly. Using a man. But people always have the tendency to want to bring glory to the man. We're just mere men with feet of clay and God help the man that allows the glory to come to him or that he would take the glory away from Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 130 through 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories let him glory. In the Lord. Can't be clearer than that. Everything. Everything that takes place in our life. Anything that good that comes from my life. God gets all the glory. I take credit for all the junk. It's all mine. Everything good is his. Those are the rules. (laughs) It's real simple. So Calvary Chapel believes that Jesus is the centrality of the scriptures but secondly Jesus is centrality of salvation so we've looked at the wider factor we're looking to the bullseye Jesus is the only one that can bring man to God listen to his words in John 14:6 a very important verse Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father but by me That's quite a statement. Any person would get up on TV or something. Trump, Hillary, whoever. And they would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God but through me. They'd carry him on to a loony farm. Maybe not today. But I am the way. The way to God. The way to heaven. The way to be forgiven. Anybody tells you that there's another way to God or to heaven or forgiveness is a deceiver and a liar. I am the truth. The truth about the things of God. The truth about the lostness of man. The truth about Satan, the truth about the world. And we can go on and on. What the revelation of the scriptures reveal and what Jesus declares is absolute objective truth, not subjective, objective truth. It is not an opinion. It is not a suggestion. It is not maybe. It is absolute truth that does not change. We live in a relative cultural society. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. Situational ethics, value clarification. Where what's right for you may not be right for me. What's wrong to you may not be wrong to me. How interesting that we're so um, selective in that. We're dishonest. You certainly don't drive by relative situations. You don't get to a light and say, well, I think that green is red today. No, the greens always go. It's objective truth. And the red is stop. How about balancing your checkbook? Is it relative? Is it value clarification? Today a 1 is for you and a 1 is a 10. And tomorrow a 1 is for the bank and it's minus 1. You think they'd go for that? No, one is a one. Figures don't lie, but liar sure can't figure. So it's very dishonest. I am the life. The one who gives life to man. Even if you don't know Jesus Christ. You've got voluntary muscles, you've got involuntary muscles. When you go... To sleep tonight, you better thank God that he gave you involuntary muscles that he controls. Thank God you don't have to think to breathe. You'd die. In fact, some people have apnea and that's what happens. They stop breathing. He gives life to every person. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But when we're born again, he gives us eternal life. We experience life the way it's really supposed to be lived out. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean that we have no problems. It doesn't mean that we don't fail. It means that we understand that He is the giver of life and that we can live life only through Him to experience it to its fullness. The one who takes life from man, he can take it anytime he wants and sometimes he does. Everyone certainly has a lifespan and at the end of that span... Every person, man, woman, and child, will die. One of these days, if the Lord tarries, I will give my last breath. And this old funky carcass will begin to get real cold and stiff. But the minute I give my last breath, I will be instantly present before the Lord. As Pastor Chuck used to say, when you read... Xavier died, don't believe it, I moved into my heavenly tent, if you will, my habitation. I'll begin to be present with the Lord. Second Corinthians five one through eight. The one who gives eternal life to man, that begins here on earth. Some of you have experienced a new birth. You repented from your sins. You live life a certain way, and then, by God's grace, you began to live for Christ, and Christ lived through you. And you began to live life on a different level, with different mind, different eyes, different way of making decisions, seeing life what it was. And it made all the difference in the world. You were able to be one with God because he forgave you of your sins. So it is he who is central here. Um, you you just, you can't get away from it. He is the central one for salvation. Absolutely. Jesus is the only name able to save lost man. In Acts 4.12 it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must, not it would be nice, must, Be saved. The must is that it's the only way for you to be saved. Not that he's going to force you to be saved. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. Every person in hell tonight knows they could have gone to heaven. If they would have repented. But they chose not to. No one in hell tonight is blaming God for sending him to hell. They know they sent themselves because they rejected the only name. The name of Jesus in the Greek means well, it's the name in the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua is the contraction of Yahweh Shua, Yahweh of salvation. So the name Jesus is Yahweh of salvation. The angel Gabriel told Mary and Joseph he shall save his people from their sins. Because he was sent to his own, the Jew first, but his own received them not. The name is not optional, but mandatory. The verse says whereby men must be saved, as I said earlier. The narrow-mindedness of God is the expression of His gracious, loving-kindness to lost man to be saved. He's the epitome of holiness. We're the epitome of sin, and yet He made a way. He wasn't forced to make a way. He didn't have to make a way. He chose to make a way because He loved us. The invitation is to all who are willing to come. No one is excluded except the one that excludes himself by rejecting salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. That offends many people, especially today when you're living in this relative culture, right? Especially right now with the political correctness, you know, people don't want to make judgments. In fact, um, Hillary said... If I get elected, Christians are going to have to change their mind about a lot of things. Really? I don't think so. I doubt it. Christians have been dying for the name of Jesus from the beginning of time. Christians have been threatened with their lives since the beginning of time. And they've gone to the stake, be burned alive. They've been shot in the head. They've been hung. They've been quartered. They've been tortured. And they've died not in denying Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The Bible tells us. In Second Timothy two, five it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The mediator is between God and man. A mediator is one between two, two that are not reconciled, two that are separate. And that in-between person, having some connection with the one on the right and the one on the left, mediates to bring them together. That's what a mediator is. God being the epitome of holiness, man being the epitome of sinfulness, Jesus being God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Became the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit seen by angels preached among the Gentiles believed on the world received them into glory first Timothy three sixteen. And He grabbed the whole of the hand of God the father the hand of man and he died and his blood joined us together for those who trust in the precious blood of Jesus Christ in his name and the only mediator the high priest of the Old Testament was a mediator. Had to come from the tribe of Levi. The family of Aaron. Not anybody could be a priest. And that priest. He would go into the first room. The holy place. 15 by 30. All the time to do the offering. The bread and all that. But only once a year in the holy of holies. Through 15 by 15. And he would bear the 12 tribes on his heart and stones. Six on his shoulder. Bearing the burden of the nation. Close to his heart. And when he would go in, he would represent the people to God. And when he came out, he represented God to the people as he would speak to them and give them the ordinance, whatever it was, God. He was a mediator. He was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ to come, but of a different order. Jesus was after the order of Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews tells us, a superior order. Jesus was not of the tribe of Judah. Of tribe of uh, Levi but Judah which the scripture spoke nothing about because he came after the order of Melchizedek remember King Melchizedek of Jerusalem when Abraham came back from the slaughter of the kings recovering all the stuff from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and lot then you find him in Psalms and then you find him several times in the book of Hebrews that's the only place he's found it was prophetic of Jesus Christ the implication is that man cannot approach God himself then. He is separated by sin nature and his sins. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, God's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God and he turns his back on you. Psalm sixty six eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Sin to God in our lives is like going through a dead zone on your cell phone. That call gets dropped until reconnection is made. Sin severs fellowship from God until I confess my sin and acknowledge my sin and abandon my sin and ask God to forgive me of my sin. It's presumptuous to believe that God will have anything to do with me when I am in sin. In fact, it's an affront to God. It's a greater insult because I as a believer know that. And it's a greater accountability to me if I presume on that. Because we are sinners, we are enemies of God until we're born again. You and I are children of wrath by nature. No hope until Jesus Christ saved us. And so, he is the only mediator. The proclamation has to be accepted or rejected. There is no other mediator. There is no other valid option. There is no other intercessor or high priest. It's Jesus or nothing. That's what the scriptures tell us. If you have a combination lock, there's only one combination to it. And somebody asks you, how many combinations do you have for that? It's just one. Well, you're very narrow-minded. Why don't you have many? It's one combination. And if you don't know that combination... That lock's not going to open. There's only one person that can bring us to God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. He is central to the gospel. We are to beware lest anyone cheat us through philosophy or empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles, of the ABCs of the world, and not according to Christ. Colossians two eight tells us. Be it through religion. Religion is not a step towards God. Religion is a step away from God. Because religion shapes God after their own image. Be it in philosophy. Philosophy, phileosophia, the love of wisdom. Be it through psychology. Only God knows the psyche of man. Not man. Only God. Be it through sociology. Be it through TM or New Age meditation. Be it through contemplative prayer of the emergent church. Be it in imagery, whatever it is. There is no other person. None whatsoever. All these philosophies, existentialism, whatever it is, choose it. It can't bring you to God. No other name can save man from his sin. Only Jesus can forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, John, first John one nine. Not the name of Buddha, not the name of Krishna, not the name of Muhammad, not by the church of the Latter day Saints, the Mormons, not by works. Only Jesus Christ. That's very offensive to people today. There was a time when this wasn't offensive to the United States. But in the last 10 years, with the political correctness and the relative philosophy of our society, it becomes a very hostile society. And it moves from just indoctrination to legislation. And we even see that coming. Things are happening pretty fast. No other meteor can reconcile man to God. Jesus is the only Lawyer for our defense, except he's a different lawyer. In First John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I write to you that you do not practice sin, but you have Jesus Christ the righteous to make intercession for you, a lawyer for your defense. Lawyers on earth will take your case even if you're guilty. Jesus is a true, honest lawyer. The only way he takes your case, the only way he can get you off is if you admit your guilt. If you try to plead bargain, doesn't even listen to you. You try to justify yourself, he doesn't listen to you. You try to blame others as the fault of it, he doesn't listen to you. You must own up to your sin, identify it, confess it, and abandon it. He's a very honest, honest lawyer. No religious ritual of the Catholic Church can make you worthy before God. No, no set of penitence, laying on a bed of nails or giving up certain foods or denying yourself certain comfort. None of that. The Virgin Mary can do nothing for you. The Pope can do nothing for you. Mary acknowledged her own sinfulness. Read the Magnificent in Luke. He calls Jesus my Lord and my Savior, my God. Wow. Calvary Chapel believes that Jesus is the centrality of salvation. Today, the push is for ecumenicalism. Just to love one another. Not to exclude anybody. We're all gonna be in heaven. No, we're not. Everybody's gonna be in hell that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. That's what my Bible teaches me. And if it weren't by the grace of God, I would be there also. Thirdly, Jesus is the centrality of worship the raising of hands is standing up is one way that we worship God the scriptures in Solomon in 1st King 8 when he dedicates the temple he's standing up with his arms raised he's kneeling down all these different things but there is a public worship and there is a private worship when we are gathered corporately as a body were to do everything decent and in order. The Corinthian church was just the opposite. It was a cultural church. It was like a circus atmosphere. And many times Christian churches, especially extreme Pentecostal churches, are like a circus atmosphere. They say it's the inspiration of the spirit. It's more like perspiration of the flesh. Okay? They would sit here and think, I'm not full of the spirit at all. They would find this boring. They will say, I'm not filled with the Spirit at all. And so we attempt to have worship decent and in order as we come together. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. If we all stand up, we stand up. You want to raise your hands, fine. But if everyone is worshiping together and we should then conform to the order if we're all sitting down worshiping and you just stand up and start swaying back and forth and lifting your hand you're really drawing attention to yourself you're distracting from Jesus Christ because we're in a corporate worship if you were at home you could do whatever you want now many people say well you're quenching the spirit no I'm quenching your flesh not the spirit If everyone's sitting down, then we should be sitting down. And so we should conform to that order. Um, If you want to raise your hands and sway back and forth again, you know, and some people, you know, they, they, they lean more to an emotional, fine, that's fine. But you want to be aware of the corporate gathering and that you don't bring attention to yourself. So we, we, we dissuade people from bringing attention to themselves. There's the practice of dancing in the spirit, so-called. Or slaying in the spirit. That people are dancing in the spirit. Or somebody lays hands on you and you fall backwards. The only problem is that both of those terms are not found anywhere in Scripture nor the practice. This is done in most Pentecostal churches as a person dances around in one spot or around the pews or whatever it is. And it's always the same person at the same time in the same corner. And it's more flesh than spirit. The focus is not on Jesus. If we're worshiping Jesus and you're tap dancing like Shirley Temple over there, what do you think is going to be happening? You're drawing attention away from Jesus the service. There's also interpretive dance that churches got into and even some of the Calvaries did for a while. And um, it's, again, a work of the flesh. It brings distraction away from Jesus. It's a subjective expression of the individual. The focus, once again, is not upon Jesus. It's upon the person. And, of course, they can all say, well, you're quenching the Spirit. Well, the Spirit's not the author of confusion. The practice of laying hands on those who, as I said, fall forward or backward. They call it slaying in the Spirit. Once again, if you fall back, we're worshiping the Lord and you fall back. Who's getting the attention as you go down? Everybody's looking at you. And by the way, if if God was going to knock you down, why do people have to catch you? Because they don't want to get sued and they don't want your head to crack. It's contrived. And some people get affected very emotionally and they actually do faint. People bring it on themselves emotionally. Now, could God knock you down? Of course he can. But he wouldn't hurt me. But once again, why would he do that in front of people? It would draw attention away from him, right? The only people that we see that would even come close to being slain in the spirit is Ananias and Sapphira. And they never got up. So, if we can't say, like Peter in the day of Pentecost, this is that which is spoken of the prophet. If we can't put our finger on the scripture for what we practice, we should not be practicing what is not scriptural. Simple. Very simple. The focus, again, is upon you. You're there wiggling on the ground. Everybody's calling attention to you. The practice of speaking in tongues in a public assembly... Again, takes away the focus of Jesus. In a public assembly, there are non-believers. In a private assembly of only believers, we can exercise the gifts a little more. Decent and in order. But not where there's a corporate assembly. You have non-believers. And Paul says, will they not say you're mad? And by the way, it's not only the non-believer, if you examine 1 Corinthians 14. Um... It says even those who are not instructed, okay, the believer who's not instructed, they'll both say, aren't they crazy? Because speaking in tongues, you're speaking to God. No one understands you. Tongues only edifies yourself. You don't even understand what you're saying. First Corinthians fourteen one through three, yet you're speaking to God. And it edifies you if you have that gift. The gift is legitimate. But it's the least of the gifts because it only edifies you unless it's interpreted by the Spirit of God. And then it serves almost as prophecy for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Tongues has the benefit. It builds you up. And again, if it's interpreted, then the body receives it. But again, in the context of believers, not non-believers with the believer, they will think we're crazy, First Corinthians 14:22 through26. Both the non-believer and the believer who does not believe in the gifts or is not instructed in the gifts. There's the practice uh, of calling attention to a person also by what they give. In other words, parading their giving, it detracts from Jesus. Giving to God is between you and God. And you're to give out of your heart and love hilariously. If you cannot give to God what you want to give to God hilariously, don't pollute our offering. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 5-7. through seven. In fact, in chapter 8 and 9, Paul deals all about giving. I think in the 36 years that I have um, ministered here as your pastor, I've given maybe seven messages on tithing. As I go through the scripture, I hit it. That's it. God deals with that aspect. But sometimes churches and people, pastors, they do it in a way that takes the glory and the centrality of God's work in a person's life. They take pledges. They beg for money constantly they um, have drives to raise a budget for something they allow people to send letters out We, we don't see that anywhere in scripture those are man made things that detract from the attention of Jesus everything you see here in this building the gym everything God has done through the people of God without one car wash one cookie sale Begging, crying, or programs or letters. That's not a boast, that's just a fact. To Him is the glory. My responsibility is to feed you, to teach you the Word of God. And I do that because God called me to do that, and He enables me to do that. And His department is providing the finances as He deals with your heart. That's it. No pressure. No sad stories, nothing. Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 6, 1. Simple. Pastor Chuck, once again, is a perfect example how God blessed them. There was a time when Costa Mesa made more money on their interest than their tithing. That's how much God blessed them. And Chuck was the first one to tell you, I have nothing to do with this. Chuck never begged on the radio. He gave things away. He never pressured anybody. Wow. God from the beginning made it clear about not detracting the focus of worship from him. As he um, slew the sons of Aaron. As they offer strange fire in the first offering. In Numbers 10. Strange fire. People want attention. They want to detract from Jesus. They want the glory. They want people to worship them. The word worship appears more times in the book of what do you think? The book of Revelation. More than any other book of the New Testament, 24 times the word worship. Contrasting the true worship of Jesus Christ and the false worship of the Antichrist. Wow. The theme of heaven is the worship of Jesus as the 24 elders worship Jesus and they cast their crowns at his feet, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. The practice of giving The appearance of being more spiritual than we are takes glory from Jesus and is condemned by God even as Ananias was slain by the hand of the Lord in Acts 5. Strange fire, hypocrisy like the Pharisees desiring to be seen of men. Matthew 6, 5. We want to see Jesus. We don't want to see you You don't want to see me. We want to see Jesus. He's the central person. So Calvary Chapel believes that Jesus is the centrality of worship. There's no one else, ladies and gentlemen. This is a very important and clear distinctive of Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. The centrality of Jesus. Jesus is the centrality of the scriptures, Jesus is the centrality of salvation. And Jesus is the centrality of worship. Very clear. God gets all the glory and all the attention. Can you handle that? (laughs) That's all the Bible teaches. It's his glory and his alone. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and your word. And we thank you for just. The clarity of your word, Lord. Mm -hmm. Father, we have to go out of our way to obstruct it and to distort it. Lord, we pray tonight you would speak to each of us, Lord, as we worship you. And allow you to be the focus of not only our attention, but that of others, that we would not detract from you, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just deal with each of us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. Jesus died for you. He became sin for you. He accepted and received the wrath of the Father in your place. If you believe that he did that for you, then you can call upon him. And he will forgive you of your sins and save you and make you a child and give to eternal life by grace through faith. It's called repentance. This is a simple prayer of repentance that you can ask the Lord to forgive and save you. It's no special prayer, just a prayer to ask him. If this is your desire, you can repeat it right now and he's going to save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.